0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. I just spoke with Matt Wisnowski about his new book, Engineers for Change, Competing Visions of Technology in 1960s America. MIT Press published that in 2012. This is a book that looks at discourses and debates about technology, its dangers, uh, the benefits that it might provide for society, and the responsibility that went with both of those aspects of technological change in American life between the 1960s and the 1970s. At this moment, engineers were constituting themselves and constituting their profession, both individually and in uh, large and small groups across America, as they wrestled with issues of responsibility, um, among other things. How did the individual engineer... Both um, envision himself or herself within a group. How did the individual engineer navigate the poles between, on the one hand, trying to maintain a professional, uh, responsible professionalism, and on the other hand, figure out figuring out ways to agitate for social justice? Uh, in those cases in which the engineer might feel that there were larger social goals that their position situated themselves to help with. In the course of the book, Matt looks at a number of really interesting case studies that range from professional contexts like um, the institutions of MIT, Princeton, Harvard, Caltech, Harvey Mudd, to a popular press and an alternative press that emerges out of social activist groups made by and for engineers, to a number of other kinds of media and kinds of outlets within which engineers and people who are concerned with engineering as a discipline and as a practice, as a group, are really struggling to come to terms with and redefine some key concepts that are central to this period of really massive technological, social, cultural, and political change in American history. We see capsule histories here of notions like innovation, creativity, collaboration, process, Uh, responsibility. And these are just some of the, the major touchstones in this really fascinating history of not just engineering and engineers, but what it meant to be a responsible citizen and a professional in this context of massive transformation um, in 1960s, 1970s America. It's a fascinating book. It was really wonderful to talk with Matt about it. Um, And there's a lot of really rich discussion um, and a lot of ways that he fleshes out his own process in the course of the interview. So I hope you'll listen and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Matt Wisnowski about his new book, Engineers for Change Competing Visions of Technology in 1960s America. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Matt, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today.
1: Well, and thank you, Carla. This is really an excellent service, and I'm happy to play my little part.
0: Oh, my pleasure. So, Matt, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What uh, History of science is kind of, um, it's not a field that a lot of people get into right off the bat at the beginning of their academic career. Um, what brought you to the field of the history of science? Did you start off in the sciences or did you start off as a historian or neither one of those things? Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Uh, sure. I think my story is not atypical. I was originally studying material science and engineering as an undergraduate and um, wound up getting my undergrad degree in that. And I would say maybe about in my sophomore, my junior year, uh, I got a little bit bored and I just kept asking, when are we going to get to the big questions that helped to contextualize the kind of work that I was doing? So I signed up one semester to fulfill my electives in two history of science courses. One of them was a science and religion course with Larry Principe, and uh, the other was a hybrid graduate undergraduate course on the scientific revolution by Pam Long. And I thought I was going to drop one of these courses, and I wound up having to go to the undergraduate dean's office to say, hey, can I take more credits? Because uh, it was just an eye-opening experience. Um, I read Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and I thought, this sounds like the, the experience that I'm encountering, especially um, what he had to say about textbooks. So um, from that moment, I was hooked, but there was a long period of time. So I wound up doing a double major, but there was a long period of time where I thought, well, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to, to feed myself if I go into history. So I'm, I'm, I should stick <laughs> to this engineering thing.
0: And It's actually really interesting to hear because um, Pam and Larry in particular tend to be historians of science who are really concerned with practice, right? And with um, talking about artisanship, and so I can sort of, as you're saying that, I can kind of see the link between that to looking at another kind of sort of conceptual workers, but also practitioners, which is engineers. So the book um, that we're talking about today explores discourses and debates over technology in American life in the 60s, so roughly between 64 1964 and 1974. And this is a moment where, as you put it, engineers were at war with their ideals. And this exploration of the professionalism, the ethics, and the um, kind of career in uh, wrestling with technological futures is something that we'll talk about in the course of um, the chapters of the book. This book also, for listeners, launches the Engineering Studies series for the MIT Press. So, Matt, how did you come to focus on engineers in particular Um, as your interest, as your main interest in the history of science, at least for the purpose of this book? Uh,
1: Well, when I went to graduate school, I never would have thought that I would have come so close to writing about my own encounters. But like many projects, that's what happened. I I was uh, an engineering student, as I just mentioned, and I spent a little bit of time working at the um, Army Research Laboratory in Aberdeen Proving Ground, and I had this experience of working with quite excellent um, people and, and great mentors, but in this world that seemingly had been built uh, after the Second World War and continuing on through uh, the Cold War, and this tension between what are the goals of of scientific and technological labor, um, what are the 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 responsibilities that individuals have with respect to making weapons technologies with uh, working in um, uh, local communities and that kind of thing. And I wouldn't have thought I would have written about this, but then when I was at Princeton, I was taking a history of uh, us cultural intellectual history course with uh, Dan Rogers and he sort of saw my interest. And he said, hey, you know, there was a, a, a person at Princeton, a professor in the 60s named Steve Slavey, who was uh, in the engineering department, but he was also one of the leaders of organizing the student movement and various kinds of campus protests. And I, Mike Mahoney, who was my advisor, said, hey, you know, there's this guy named Steve Slavey who <laughs> was in the 60s and, you know, maybe you should look into that. And I thought, okay, well, um, I'll, I'll see what they have in special collections. And, and I found his papers and, and it was, it opened up a much broader world that I didn't know existed. And um, I also found when I was in the engineering library at Princeton, all of these social theory books on the shelves that had clearly gotten a lot of use, um, but that seemed out of place in today's world to, to be there. So that was really the, the origin of, of the project and it expanded outward from there.
0: Awesome. And um, we'll talk a little bit about Slaby when we get to chapter five, because he's one of the he forms the kind of crux of one of the case studies that we look at there. So, Matt, this started out as a dissertation at Princeton, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: So can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book manuscript and then to book, were there any major transformations along the way? Were there any surprises or um, any notable aspects of that process for you that you'd like to talk about for us?
1: Well, I would say the biggest surprise is how long it took. (laughs) Um, But I I finished very quickly. I was lucky enough to get a postdoc position while I was in my fifth year. So the dissertation was finished in a, a haste and wound up done Uh, I think two or three days before I started teaching at Washington University in St. Louis. And so I wound up in the course of, of sending a proposal, responding to reviewers, revising, expanding the dissertation dramatically, and essentially rewriting everything a couple of times. Um, There are, I think I did maybe four or five of the archival studies uh, came after the dissertation. So there's quite a lot of new material. There's a new chapter. Um, And I think what happens when you go through this process of of dissertation to book is that you do an enormous amount of recalibrating your arguments, um, coming at it with a much more sort of mature and robust approach and that I can look back at the dissertation and see the, the elements of it there, but it's it's um, it, it's hard to, to even express how different it seems to me to look at now from from what I wrote uh, back then. Right.
0: And I think it's, um, it's an amazing book, and so congratulations on that. And I think um, a lot of the people who I talk to really value and put a lot of emphasis on the importance of taking that time between dissertation and book manuscript to mature and to let the ideas and the work develop. And it really seems like it paid off here.
1: Well, uh, thanks. And I guess I would say that if you can take that time, absolutely. I think it's becoming a little bit harder, but but find a way. (laughs)
0: Now, so let's get into the book itself. Um, Now, one of the things I want to start off by asking you has to do with the structure of the book and the chapters. So, each, and and the first one in particular. So, each, or um, certainly most of the chapters, open up with a quotation, some sort of epigraph that sets the tone. For the rest of the um, the chapter, the rest of what's um, to come in those pages. Now, the epigraph for the introduction itself, um, as you know, the the kind of first epigraph in a book tends to do, really sets the tone for the book as a whole. And here, it's a different kind of quotation from what we see in the other chapters, you choose to open the introduction with a quotation from Carlo Ginsburg's The Cheese and the Worms. And I think this is a quotation that's about Minocchio. Can you talk a little bit, to, to get us started into the project as a whole, um, about that choice? Um, why did you choose to open with that particular section, and how does that motivate what's to come um, in the rest of the introduction and the book for us?
1: So my mind was lofty and wished for a new world and and way of life. Um, I mean, to me, that captured the essence of both the radical engineers I was looking at and those engineers in uh, high positions of leadership in the National Academy of Engineering or in corporations or in uh, university deans and the like. And people don't often think about engineers as intellectuals. And engineers don't get a lot of formal training as intellectuals, though many of them, especially those who uh, become interested in reform, are deeply concerned with problems of the mind. And for me, so I encountered the the cheese and the worms as an undergraduate, and it was one of those books that opened up the possibilities to me as an engineer of what the humanities brought to the table. Um, it was such a, a strange take. So there's this this local Miller who um, is, is being uh, um, put on trial by the Inquisition, and he's trying to explain his interpretation of a kind of natural philosophy, of politics, of religion, of all of this kind of stuff, at which he's encountering through books and, and is then trying to, I don't know, proselytize is not the right word, but he gets in trouble for sharing these words, uh, the, his ideas, and, and and trying to get other people to, to listen to him. And so for me, that was uh, both a, a, a signal of the, the kind of method that I wanted to apply, the sort of cultural, intellectual, historical model, um, I, I'm really interested in how it is that engineers create meaning and how that meaning affects the way in which they define and solve problems. But it also, to me, really hinted at the aspirational uh, approach that these these people who I was uh, exploring brought to their their lives. I mean, this for many of these people was a transformative experience where they broke out of old ways of seeing.
0: Great. Thanks, Matt. Now, as we get into uh, the the body of the book itself, the book focuses on the period between 1964 and 1974 in the history of engineers and engineering in America, but there's a lot of attention in the book placed on the transition between this period and what came before, and so that the particular challenges that this period raised for not just American society and the revisiting of the place of technology and the understanding of technology within that society, but also the placement of and the situation of engineers within this larger context. So to understand or to get us to what's so special about this period of the 1960s, can you talk a little bit about um, the immediate period before. So, what was it like to be an engineer in America in the immediate aftermath of World War II, say from 45 to 64? What did that period before the period that we're talking about involve um, so that we can understand the change that happens?
1: Sure. Well, I think to really get at that change, you need to go back even further. Um, I, so much of the literature about the history of engineering was written in this period of the 1960s and the early 1970s and, and informed by the kinds of stuff that I talk about in the book. But most of that literature is about engineering at the turn of the 20th century and engineering through um, the Depression, because this is a, a period where the engineer really rises to the fore as a kind of cultural hero. Uh, if you go back into the 1920s and the 1930s, you can find I mean, books that sell millions of copies about... Uh, The way in which engineers are kind of rugged American heroes who are um, organizing and ordering uh, the the frontier, who are bringing electricity to people who don't have it, and at the same time, engineering is in the United States is very much tied to the rise of corporate organization. Uh, Most engineers worked in fairly large companies. What we see to, to get to World War II, we see during World War II just a dramatic um, expansion in the number of engineers trained, the kind of things that um, they're learning, the positions that they um, take place. Um, so, from 1945 to the mid 1960s, the engineering profession increases um, fourfold. So, about 250 thousand engineers um, in the in the early 1940s and over a million in the mid-1960s. Something on the order of, and I I don't have it in front of me, so I apologize if the statistics are wrong, but something on the order of 75% of engineers work in 1% of all firms. Now, the aerospace industry is at the heart of this. Um, The aerospace industry almost did not exist prior to the First World War. It was a craft industry that employed maybe 50,000 people to by the 1960s, it's employing, it's employing over um, 2 million uh, people. Uh, the 10 biggest uh, companies, aerospace companies, employ a huge number of the engineers out there. Another thing that I'm, I'm sure um, many of the listeners are familiar with is the, the sort of the rise of the, the scientist and the physicist in particular as the kind of cultural icon of technical and scientific uh, labor after the Second World War. Um, as a consequence of um, the atomic bomb and, and radar and, and, and things like that. And so engineers have this um, sort of contest of professional identity with the sciences. At the same time, the amount of graduate training that engineers has is, is, is expanding dramatically. It used to be the case that you would get an undergraduate degree and go work um, directly. A master's degree increasingly becomes the norm. And there's definitely a, a sort of PhD envy Going on as well.
0: Great. Thank you. And you talk in the book about the ways um, that the Cold War changed things for U.S. engineers. And so, um, uh, you know, along the lines of the kinds of things you're talking about, higher education becomes a dominant path of entry into the profession. There's a ton of engineers. I mean, this would seem to be um, a really positive period for engineers. This would seem to be, I think, one. a period that you may have referred to in the book as a golden age for engineers. However, in the decade that follows um, this period from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, technology takes on a kind of sinister and ambiguous connotation in American society, and it's this moment that we see engineers who we don't typically think of as sort of radical or as um, involved in um, sort of major ethical uh, developments or... Movements actually taking um, control in a in a way or attempting to take control of their place in this changing technological landscape. Now, and the book is going to follow that through. Now, a thread that runs throughout the book that um, opens up in this first chapter is the relationship between what you call the is of society and the ought of society from the perspective of engineers who are navigating this change and this change in um, the technological society of America. Can you talk about that, the relationship between the is and the ought of society for engineers in this context?
1: Sure, and I think this goes back to your question about sort of going from dissertation to book a little bit. I mean, one of the, the intellectual or the kind of conceptual questions that I struggled with from the earliest moment of, of trying to work on this project up until I sort of, I think I, I, I figured it out is, am I talking with ideology? Am I talking with social imaginaries? Um, what is the best way to describe how people who don't necessarily consider themselves to be political ideologues shape visions of the future that impact um, their everyday lives and the kind of work? That they do. And I make the argument that engineering is normative by nature. It's always about some kind of future state. And that's always based on some kind of interpretation, some kind of contextualization of the present moment that is. Um, I, I'm not the only person who talks in this way. I mean, I think Ken Alder uh, wrote quite nicely about this in uh, Engineering the Revolution, a book about the, the French re- engineers in the French Revolution, but I, I came to, con, to understand this stuff through the term of normative vision, which struck me as a way of not getting into all those old uh, in questions about uh, what is ideology? Is ideology, is ideology constraining? Uh, and one that would allow talking about actors from a, a wide range of sort of formality in, in how they see the world. If we're looking at the people, the engineers who are writing their own magazines or who are creating nat- national directives, these people clearly have uh, a very formalized sense of how they contextualize the past, how it is that we got into the problems that we have, uh, and what they want to, to be uh, to have happen. But many of uh, these engineers, sort of on the margins, don't necessarily have this. So, um, I teach a course at Virginia Tech called Engineering Cultures, and one of the core themes about this is trying to show the different ways in which engineering is always concerned with this sort of temporal dimension, which is always tied to different societal goals. Um, So I think, I I guess that's what I was trying to get at with uh, the is and the ought of engineering um, thought.
0: Great. Thank you. And this actually brings up another thing, um, or it lets me... um transition to another thing that seems really important to the book. In many ways, keywords and transformations in language are really crucial for the kind of analysis that you're presenting here in the book. So among many other things, and we'll come up um or we'll sort of come to several of them in the course of our conversation, the story that you're telling traces the ways that technology becomes a keyword and one with changing meanings in the 20th century and certainly in the 60s. Related to this, um, one of the crucial concepts that you raise in the book and the crucial sets of terms really speaks to the ideological issue that you were just talking about. This is the idea of an ideology of technological change, which pushes, um, again, it's sort of, looks into the future and situates the engineer in time. And I think precisely the way you were just talking about. Do you want to talk just a little bit more about this particular notion, the ideology of technological change in its importance to the way engineers are struggling with their own place in the, as a profession and in the context of the technological society of America in the mid-60s and um, up to the mid-70s?
1: Sure well, I, I think I want to do two things uh, i'll I'll say a little bit about the notion of keywords and how I use those, how that fits in with broader um, sort of shifts in uh, the history of technology as as a field and then i'll get to the ideology of technological change because that's really the core argument of of the book and and I think is the most important consequence of the book the naming of of this thing awesome um, so in terms of the you know, there's a long tradition of keyword analysis. Not surprisingly, um, uh, Dan Rogers, who I worked with, has a book that talks about um, keywords in, in American political thought. There's a tradition that goes back to people like um, Raymond Williams. But while I was working on this as a dissertation, I, I was aware that I was a part of um, an emerging trend in the intellectual history of technology or cultural intellectual history of technology, which you know, on the surface, doesn't seem all that um, surprising. But this was a the history of technology is a field that often is is most concerned with things, with artifacts, with systems, with networks, and um, people like Eric Schatzberg who went and looked at the origins of the idea of technology and, and discovered that that and Leo Marx as well discovered that really until the early the 1920s and the 1930s, this word did not have the meaning that it has now. And it did not have the kind of powerful presence in um, global discourse that it currently has. Um, so I was kind of working in this area. And and one of the moments when I felt like I really had stumbled onto something is, I don't know if you remember the uh, computer lab at the bottom of the history building, but I was down there um, doing an analysis of Uh, in the New York Times database, trying to trace out the rise of this word technology over time. So I would go in and I would plug in, okay, the year 1935, and how many times does technology happen? How many times does the engineer happen? And I I saw these graphs, these two words, um, converging and then going off in the opposite direction. And so in in the book, this chart is at the front of the introduction because to me that was a, an indication that they meet in 1968 so there's a kind of a, a, a semantic reversal happening at the very moment that uh the united states is in turmoil the engineering profession is in turmoil technology is being accused as uh, as responsible for for all of these things and i showed this to people and they're like oh that's that's nice that's okay <laughs> um, but now with things like google ngram this has become really the norm for Uh, gut check analyses of the, you know, cultural resonance of particular kinds of words. And now I could do that same chart, which really took me at least a day. And then I played around with it and I kept doing these funny things. Um, you could do in less than 10 seconds or something like that. But, but, um, so the keyword thing I was sort of a, a real challenge for people who look at uh, and analyze things in these terms is, you know, sort of how robust is that? How That doesn't really make sense outside of the context of a thick description kind of analysis. Um, so from all of that kind of work, uh, I also am drawing on uh, an, an important book by Langdon Winner, um, uh, Autonomous uh, Technology, which looks at uh, many of these theorists of technology in the 1960s and he briefly uses the term uh, ideology of technological change uh, the term kind of appears in appears also in uh rosalind williams uh book retooling but for me this what was fascinating was the ways in which engineers were deeply responsible for creating this idea so what is the ideology of technological change um, Basically, it's an argument that, okay, technology is not inherently progressive. We're not, we don't believe that anymore. But, um, technology is a semi-autonomous force that, in in a sense, has its own nature. Now, the, the way in which engineers can engage with this is to become socio-technologists, people who are aware of both, um, societal effects of technology and the, uh, the ability to produce technology itself. So the argument of this, and it goes back all the way to William Ogburn um, in the 1920s and the 1930s, but it becomes a, a kind of dominant way of thinking at this period in the 1960s that I talk about. And the argument is that technology is, uh, is accelerating at a faster pace than social institutions um, can handle. And what we need is somebody to help um, figure out the positive um, impacts of technology to maximize those, understand that there are, are unintended and unintended is a, it is a crucial key word here, unintended negative effects that uh, are inevitable. Um, people are always going to be displaced. Um, economic uh, disruption is always going to happen with new technologies. And, you know, there's a kind of economic tradition. We could look at uh, people like Joseph Schumpeter and others. Um, but, So the engineer's role here, at least the socio-technologist's role, uh, the expert who understands technology and society together, is to help society adjust by uh, maximizing the positives and minimizing the negatives. Uh, This does a lot of things. It lets engineers off the hook for all of the problems that do exist. They can say... um, well, look, this is a new way of understanding the world. These problems are emergent. These problems are new. Uh, We want to solve them just as much as anybody else. And in fact, um, if you look to to the elite, we are the people best prepared to help you solve them. Um, But it also kind of settles this challenge within the engineering profession um, between radicals and um, the, the establishment by sort of taking away the... The political anxiety about all of this stuff by saying that, look, it's okay. This we, we know what's going on here. We know we need to change, and we know we need to change in these particular ways.
0: Great. Thank you, Matt. Now, as we move through the book, um, you, you show us early on here how the engineer was once a hero. And this hero became, in the 1960s, the quote, dark-suited, short-sleeved, nondescript white man with black-rimmed glasses, or rather goes from a viral, a virile pioneer to someone who watches paint dry. Now, um, after a chapter that looks at the origins of Americans' engineers' progressive ideals in a context where technological prosperity is really redefining what it means to be an engineer, right? There's a the, the rise of environmental civil rights and anti-war movements. Um, U.S. society becomes characterized by these technologies that are suddenly sort of making these ideological issues really trenchant in a new way. Nuclear weapons, chemical pollutants, digital computers. And you have a chapter that looks at um, the way engineers become actors in debates about technology and the common good in this context. And the rest of the chapters then are going to look at specific ways that this happened and specific kinds of contexts and places where we see engineers agitating for change amongst um, themselves and amongst their own profession as well as in society at large. Chapter three looks at the importance of the theme of technological change in a new genre of technology and society writing that cuts across academic disciplines. And this is perhaps really interesting for those who are, um, for readers who might be particularly interested in STS, history of technology, as disciplines. This is really an interesting moment in the emergence of these disciplines here. Um, You've talked already about one of the major early figures of this chapter, a political philosopher Langdon Winner. Another really interesting case study here focuses on the Harvard University program in technology and society, which became, as you show, a kind of lightning rod in this battle between ideologues of technological politics and technological change. So can you talk a little bit about this um, Harvard University program on technology and society? What's going on there and why is that important for the general argument that you're making in this part of the book?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, the Harvard Program on Technology and Society, which I find that um, I talked to uh, more senior scholars in the field who were um, sort of just getting started in their careers at this point, and they all remember this thing. Um, It was incredibly prolific. It started in 1964 and was initially intended to go for 10 years, but it got um, cut off a little bit early. Um, It was founded by IBM. This was a social science sort of Policy think tank at Harvard that had a five million dollar budget. Now, for the social sciences in nineteen sixty four, that was a lot of money. Um, and the guy they put in charge was somebody who was more or less an unknown. Um, he, had, this guy, Messeney, had been a, a, worked at the Rand Corporation. Uh, he had directed the orchestra there. He um, had uh, served as a, a translator during the Second World War. He had a degree in philosophy. He was kind of a jack of all trades of the social sciences and and the kind of policy world. And the idea was that this program was designed to understand technology in its entirety, to um, look at the positive and the negative benefits of technology. And there's still some speculation about why uh, IBM was interested in this, though I ran into somebody who, who worked in IBM, who worked in the Harvard Computing. Um, center, and there is some speculation that this was tied to Harvard picking um, IBM as its um, core provider of um, uh, or its core supplier of computers. Um, but this project really brought together what we now kind of talk about as defense intellectuals. So it's a um, its advisory board included um, presidents of of oil companies, presidents of um, uh, Um, automobile companies, it included a Supreme Court justice, it it included um, congressmen, Uh, it included university presidents. Um, So this was sort of like a who's who of of the elite of this military-industrial-academic complex. And it funded a huge number of projects. They sent their annual reports out to every library, uh, every kind of congressional office, any any kind of institution that would have some connection to um, technology. And what I think the initial plan was, was to provide a kind of multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary overview of how technology and society were interacting and how to go about confronting these challenges that really everybody saw and everybody recognized as important. I mean, the, the concept of technology itself, what loomed so large at at this moment, um, what it became was sort of a, a strong proponent of this point of view I call an ideology of technological change. But rather than putting engineers in charge, it was Mestini's argument and, and the argument of some of the people who worked here that really you needed new kinds of social scientists who could stand outside of uh, these existing debates um, and and intervene in them. And just to kind of give you another sense of, of its prominence, um, you know, it had feature articles in Science, it had a front-page story in the New York Times. Um, these guys really were the people you wanted to learn about technology from in the, in the period.
0: Great. And, and alongside this emergence of um, what you're characterizing here as a new genre – of technology and society writing, there's also, um, we see in this chapter and in this period, the emergence of this new society for technology and society. And and I'm talking about the Society for the History of Technology or the organization some listeners may be more familiar with as SHOT. Um, Can you just speak a little bit to the emergence of SHOT in this context?
1: Sure. Well, I I mean, I hope I don't get into too much trouble with (laughs) (laughs) Shot, <laughs> because I think Shot is really interesting. I mean, I, it's one of the societies that you know one of my favorite meetings to go to, and one of the societies that I always felt most at home about my own work. Um, but you can see the ways in which these tensions between sort of more critical, radical ways of thinking about technology and this um, ideology of technological change approach sort of operated, and uh, many of the founding uh, fathers of Shot were of this ideology ideology of technological change perspective they were also a prominent um voice for mestini they had a um their fourth annual review was their big major report and they got a a slew of people to comment on that report and and to kind of um give it some sort of stamp of, of certification um i would i guess direct the reader to to learn more about shot um I, after this.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Now, one of the things that emerges um, in this part of the book that I, that continues to be a really important theme is the really the, the variety among the this community that we're loosely calling engineers. I mean, there were actually significant disagreements among engineers as to how to deal with these changes in the profession um, and how to deal with or how to constitute themselves as a profession in the face of technological change in American society. Now, as we move into the next chapter, we look at or you look at the crisis among engineers in the 60s over um, one aspect of that professionalism, namely what it meant to be a responsible professional and what an ethics of responsibility meant. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this here in this part of the book emerges as another of these key words um, that really are around which on which the argument in this history really pivots. Can you talk about the rhetoric of responsibility? What did that mean for engineers here? And why was that so important as a keyword in this period?
1: Sure. Well, I think I'll I'll, um, do reveal a little more craft stuff because maybe readers want that kind of thing. And and then relate that to the other chapters to kind of get a big overview and then uh, dip into the responsibility thing. Uh, So you mentioned, well, how do you talk about engineers loosely defined and how do you incorporate this broad variety of uh, opinion i mean when you're talking about a profession that includes over a million people sort of how do you write about a million people Um, you don't (laughs) or or you you write about it in a way in which you try to capture flashpoints around which um, these diversity this diversity of opinion we can kind of draw it out and for people sort of versed in, in the literature, uh, you will you'll might notice that each chapter kind of um, centers itself also around a really big key work in the history of science or in STS or in, in um, the history of technology and, and tries to reinterpret uh, an existing question set through this lens of um, engineers dealing with this crisis. So um, responsibility is... Probably the most significant keyword in the history of technology and the history of engineering, um, in in the literature that's out there. Um, most critically, there's a book called "Revolt of the Engineers" by Edwin Layton that comes out in in the early 1970s. It gets it gets reviewed by some of these engineers that I'm talking about, and he looks at the ways in which responsibility um, played its how they were questions about social responsibility emerged in uh, the progressive era and how engineers use this for, for different things. And And his argument is that responsibility gets deeply tied to the notion of what it means to be an engineering professional, but that responsibility gets tied to um, your employer, your professional colleagues, and very uh, and lastly, and sometimes not really even mentioned, sort of to society at large. Um, all of this stuff is under... Uh, discussion and, and really under is it starts to erode in the late 1960s when you get new ideas about responsibility um concepts of social responsibility coming from um the sort of a new left um other kinds of notions of responsibility coming out of response reactions to uh, physicists participation in nuclear weapons design you get the emergence of um sort of oppositional science groups and, and other kinds of things like that and responsibility is one of these words that loses all meaning i mean the, every who doesn't want to be responsible uh, who does not want to be seen as doing the righteous thing and who doesn't want to be seen as as being progressive so all every actor in here has an interpretation of responsibility and so to sort of see how they get played out is um says something to me about um the challenges of language in social movements, but it also, I think, says something about the limitations of the deep historical connection in engineering between the notion of the engineer as an autonomous professional and uh, uh, the cons- and the ways in which being able to act responsibly comes out of a kind of ideal that very rarely meets reality.
0: Now in this chapter, you talk um, specifically about the American Society of Mechanical Engineers as an example of processes of reform in societies of engineers. Can you talk a little bit about the ASME in this context? Why is it such a good example here? And how would you characterize the kind of debates that members in the society are having around these problems?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, first off, it's, it's a great um, case because one of the key figures of, of many figures in the book is a man named Victor Pashkis, who is just a remarkable person. Um, here's a guy who was born in the uh, late 19th century, uh, lived in Austria, then worked in Germany, and then came to the United States fleeing the Nazis um, and made a career for himself um, as sort of a, a researcher at Columbia and was a pacifist, was involved, um, was a conscientious objector during World War II, uh, was involved in um, the Society for Social Responsibility of Science. Uh, And once these debates start taking place, he's already in his 60s. But here's a guy who's also looking to this new technology and society literature and trying to recalibrate and remake his understanding of what responsibility is, a question that he's been asking for decades. And he starts to emerge as a voice at, in debates within this society. Um, at the same time, the American Society for Mechanical Engineers um, puts out a uh, Something called um, uh, the ASME goals around 1970, which are an attempt as a society wide, the, the ASME, I think at the time, and again, I don't have the numbers in front of you, but maybe it's about 60,000 members. Um, it creates these goals that's going to make technology a true servant of man. That's the, the tagline. You can kind of see that understanding of responsibility in that. And there's a, a the president who is behind this um, is also deeply committed to Uh, educational reform to uh, the reform of engineering uh, toward kind of more humanitarian ends. He's a dean at Catholic University of America. Donald Marlowe is his name. And these guys have relatively similar visions, but they're operating in different parts. So we get the grassroots and we get the kind of from the top down. Um, And for me, it was interesting to see how these people interacted. It wasn't that they were directly oppositional but they were trying to navigate uh, all of these contentions that were going on around them. Great.
0: Now, from this set of issues surrounding responsibility and the issue of, or the problem of responsibility in this context, we move to a context in which uh, the question emerges, how far were engineers willing to take beliefs that involved alternatives to responsible professionalism. So what happens when you're an engineer? um, How far were some engineers willing to go to actually oppose or to sort of step away from these um, ethics of responsible professionalism in order to... Uh, manage circumstances that seem to call for opposition to um, dominant professional norms in some cases. Now, this chapter, um, I'm talking about Chapter 5 in particular, looks at a series of episodes that really span the spectrum of responses in this vein from um, what you call centrist conversion to a really revolutionary rhetoric. And you look at three case studies here. One is a small research lab at at MIT that becomes a kind of model conversion because it's a, it's able to, or the engineers there, are able to kind of recast what they're doing without faulting publicly the military or government, so keeping that kind of support. But another case study here speaks to um, one of the examples that you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation when you talked about Slaby and Princeton. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening here Um at Princeton University with Slaby, and how does this um, case study really um, open up some of the concerns of this part of the book for you?
1: Sure. I guess the first thing I would say is also this is a good case of um, graduate students starting to write as early as they can and starting to share as early as they can because this uh, the, the root of this comes from the first thing I ever published in uh, History of uh, Science Uh, in 2003, they sort of started to to get this kernel of this idea of the boundaries of the system and and the the kinds of opposition and what that opposition meant. Um, But Slavy in particular, I think, is an interesting case. Uh, Here is an individual guy who has a very different background than his peers. So he um, came out of uh, industrial Detroit. He didn't have a Ph.D., he uh, was a socialist throughout his life. Uh, he was a Fulbright in, in Norway and talked about labor politics and wrote about labor politics there. Um, he was also a professor of engineering graphics. And engineering graphics, and you know, think mechanical drawing. This is the kind of thing that, especially at a place like Princeton, which embraced the notion of engineering science, that aerospace and you know, nuclear engineering, and things like that. That's that was where um, the future of being an engineer was. Um, so there are a couple things going on. I mean, first, there's the political dimension where Slaby is always. I wouldn't say radicalized, but he's oh, he was always uh, politically aware and always willing to speak up, which is not typical. Um, but at the same time, the kind of work he's doing is being devalued substantially to the point where the courses that he's been teaching that had been Standard courses required of all incoming students uh, uh, get replaced by introduction to to computers and other kinds of of newer um, skill sets for for these new sort of scientific engineers so for me, it was really interesting to see here's a guy who um, is motivated through ideals but is also motivated through his economic situation at the same time he's a tenured professor so he has the ability to to do this, and he has the, the ability to retool. So he starts to become a politics instructor, and he starts to teach sort of proto-science, um, technology, and society courses. And I think you can see that, that model in other um, universities as well. Um, and so he winds up kind of isolated, but inside this existing um, system and finds a new identity through being a, a kind of... Um, interpreter of science and technology and society. Great.
0: And this is all happening in the context of um, agitation around the Vietnam War. And he's actually, in in the process of this, he mounts a campaign against defense research at Princeton. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And and so I think where, where he's most successful is around the question of um, uh, secret Sort of sponsored research um, Princeton establishes an off-campus research um, center where uh, the aerospace engineers are after the sort of uh, faltering of the military-industrial complex those engineers can make their way back onto the main campus and Slaby is not not the only person behind this but he he does create a, a huge tension from within the departments and within the um, school of engineering itself
0: right. um, now another example that comes up in this chapter that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, because this is an example um, that actually you you begin the entire book with um, earlier on in the introduction, is the alternative press for the Committee for Social Responsibility in Engineering. Um, And they produce a journal called Spark. Can you speak a little bit about that example and that case and the kind of work it's doing for you here?
1: Sure. And and this goes back to the sort of um work done after the dissertation i wasn't i didn't i did not have access to this spark magazine until i was on my postdoc and was doing some other archival stuff and uh, when the archives were closed looking in the library stacks at ucla and was able to get my hands on this and if, if anybody uh is out there and really wants to, to get at what this book is about. See if you can find some copies of Spark magazine. I mean they're remarkable. So the the image I have in the book um of, of a cover of this shows a the kind of classic clenched of power fist shooting a lightning bolt into a transistor to make a peace sign. Um, and it includes articles um such as um, um, you know tax resistance um and uh, Pentagon capital, Seymour Melman's Pentagon capitalism. Another one has doing it at the workplace, um, revolutionary engineering. And these guys um, were the center, the the committee for social responsibility and engineering uh, came out of um, conversations with uh, engineers at Columbia, um, Brooklyn Polytechnic um, and RCA and other sort of places in the Metro New York area. And the, participants as a whole were not were not what really we necessarily sort of virulent radicals but they were very open to all of the kinds of flows of information that were taking place at the time and so their first issue is essentially just a compilation of 50 different things from uh, underground presses elsewhere from more establishment um, sort of centrist uh, groups looking to influence science and technology policy. Um, And this group to me was a a kind of perfect window into the uncertainty of being a a, a radical engineer. Could you still be radical and be an engineer? Right. (laughs) And I think for many of the, the participants, the ultimate answer was no. They came out on the other side as very motivated, uh, internal critics who are also strong supporters of what it meant to be an engineer. And I think many of the ones who were talked about, um, dropping out, one, you know, I, I, I opened the chapter, that section with a, um, one of the articles where, the, the author says, I am a dropout from the military-industrial complex, and then goes to talk about his experience of conversion and his, his awakening. And it winds up, you know, he's he's um, trying to, to find a, a new mode of living and a new mode of life. So many of the people who sort of went that route, I think, fall out of the engineering profession traditionally defined.
0: Now, as we move um, further into the, the last chapters of the book, we move from debates about responsibility um, and debates about how to engage in a kind of radical way among engineers. And we look at efforts by engineers to remake themselves and remake society under the banner of what you call humane technology. So in this part of the book, um, you know, going back to keywords, we see the importance of um, a discourse of creativity, a discourse of collaboration, and also an emphasis on process over structure. Process-oriented design. Now, this chapter is called Three Bridges to Creative Renewal, and um, along those lines, you look in detail at three efforts to create bridge-building networks by engineers. One of these bridges is between expert and user, so you look at contributions to the appropriate technology movement by a group called Volunteers for International Technical Assistance, or VITA. You also look at uh, bridges between research labs and artistic studios, and the case study for that is a group called Experiments in Art and Technology, or EAT. And thirdly, the third kind of bridge, is a bridge between developmental agencies and corporate boardrooms. And here you look at a group called the Innovation Group. Can you um, choose one of these three bridge-building networks, perhaps whichever one you find most inspiring or more interesting, and talk a little bit about um, what's going on there in the context of the broader argument of this part of the book?
1: Sure. I guess first, why three? I mean, this chapter was the hardest to write. In the in the dissertation, it was just about experiments in, in art and technology. Um, but then I discovered Vita and, this, and the innovation group, which I encountered very early on. And so I think I'll talk a little bit more about the innovation group. But what held these together was a certain kind of commonality of organizing people from very disparate activities toward very disparate ends, making art making um, development policy, um, making innovators. And at the same time, they were all sort of using the same kind of currents of collaboration, creativity, um, the emphasis on process. And when I finally put them all together, it, it was this sort of moment where the pieces clicked, where it started to to, to sort of come out and make sense that the best way to understand this humane technology is not necessarily through looking at um, the the iconoclasts, but looking at how these different groups of um, reformers engage with iconoclasts around this notion of humane technology. Um, I mean, the innovation group to me is the most interesting because it sort of points me where I'm headed next. Um, The innovation group, Group, uh, was included some of these people from the Harvard Program on Technology and Society. It included, um, people like, uh, uh Donald Schoen, who was a, 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 another kind of jack of all trades doing technical consulting, um, philosophy, um, uh, educational research. Um, and it included, uh, these kind of, I don't know, hip corporate technologists who were right there to a large extent with, the counterculture, but who saw the, that the real changes they believe were to be made from within, inside the corporation itself. So it wasn't that you would drop out, it's that you would look and see the kind of flexibility, the openness, all of those kinds of things that um, Fred Turner talks about when he looks at at um, Stuart Brand and the whole Earth catalog, but that are happening kind of simultaneously inside the system. And... Uh, they put together one of the most amazing magazines I've ever seen—a magazine called Innovation, which is sort of high gloss, pop aesthetic. Um, it did not have any advertising, uh, and when it first started to be a member of the Innovation Group, was seventy-five dollars um, at the time. I think Fortune magazine cost something like fifteen dollars a year, which was seen as oh, maybe it was five times more than any other magazine. So this thing was sort of off the charts in terms of its its elite status. Um, But in their first few issues, they would simultaneously have um, reports on the uh, research strike at MIT about uh, resistance to doing defense work. They had an essay um, by Paul Goodman, which was the precursor to his um, famous um, Can Technology Be Humane? that appeared in the New York Review of Books. But they would also have this stuff about, um, you know, like how to create a a a corporate response to uh, critics of your company um, and how to um, reconvert a defense lab into an environmental lab using government funding and things like that. So it was this really interesting mix of um, hip change managers trying to to figure out the pathway of a new identity that didn't fit into being an engineer or being uh, an executive or, or being a business person. And this notion of innovation, which they're just on, they, they're sort of like the proto-founders uh, of, of this concept, which has a longer history. But this language of innovation from really the nineteen late 1960s up until the 1980s emerges as an alternative way of doing techno-scientific labor. Um, So I I, I think I'll stop with that and see what else you you have to
0: ask me. No, 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 that's great. And it's actually, that's a really, really fascinating part of the chapter. So I'm glad glad to have heard a little bit more about it. So as we come to the last um, chapters of the book, you have a chapter, Chapter 7, that explores really the, the way that educational reform was crafted by engineers with engineers in this context and this chapter looks at four different institutions of formal training that all either built from scratch or revised their curricula to account for the changing meanings of technology and engineering in society and also the changing ways of thinking about what made an ideally educated engineer. So the four cases that you look at, I'm not going to ask you um, to talk about all of them, but um, you just for listeners, um, you look at UCLA, a comprehensive state university. You look at Caltech, an elite private research institute, Harvey Mudd College, and MIT. So is there, um, can you maybe choose one of those four examples? And again, one that you find most, most important, most interesting, perhaps most surprising. And talk about that in the context of um, this focus on education and educational reform in this last part of the book.
1: I I guess um, I would say first that education was really where the rubber hit the road. So this is why this chapter is the last sort of body chapter of the book. You can see in these institutions all of the early themes that I talked about, things like responsibility, the desire to foster creativity and collaboration, uh, the desire to um, somehow negotiate this radicalism and to incorporate it into making more open-minded uh, future engineers. And I think that, I mean, it's hard to, to pick a favorite, but <laughs> I, I think that MIT is last in, in there because MIT is also the best case for showing how all of these other uh, threads that you can see in the, in the other cases kind of exist at the same time. I mean, to be at MIT in the 1960s and the early 1970s was just a time of tremendous upheaval. Um, They have this research strike. um, They have all kinds of new intellectual directions taking shape. There are tons. I mean, basically, every unit is involved in some interdisciplinary project with some other unit around this with the notion of interdisciplinarity sort of being a conceptual uh, hinge that's doing a lot of work. Um, And out of this, you you get a lot of different kinds of projects. You get, um, uh, there's a group called the Technology and Culture Seminar that includes faculty from mostly every department, uh, many engineers, but also many humanists um, who get together and debate uh Lou uh, who wrote the technological Society and Lewis Mumford and Herbert Marcuse, and and they get into these heated and really earnest conversations about what to make of all of this kind of stuff um, you get uh, MIT uh, hires as a lecturer the former president of students for Democrat uh, um, students for a Democratic society um, you you have um, any conservative engineers and students and faculty who are kind of pushing back against this kind of stuff. But what's really fascinating here is you also get this idea of well, we what we really need is something like an integrated humanist social scientist engineer, a technologist. And we see the same thing happening in some of these other places. But MIT is one of the few places that tried to make this into a formal kind of professional activity. And you see the emergence of the field of science and technology and society or science and technology studies at MIT, which takes a little bit longer. I mean, it, it's really not until the 1970s that uh, late 1970s that this takes place, but it builds on efforts by things like um, the um, tech, not, um, what was it called? technology studies initiative by engineers like Larry Bucciarelli, um, who are working with. Uh, MIT's emergent kind of historian social scientist community Um, so we see the kind of professionalization of STS and the I don't know if breaking is the wrong word but the the um, reducing of that connection between what professional scholars of science and technology and society do and what technical practitioners, engineers, and scientists do. The ideal in in almost all of these cases were that these people were to be engaged in the same project of making um, the material world.
0: Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much. Um, I don't want to take up uh, too much more of your time. So rather than asking um, you about it, I'll just mention for listeners that there's also an epilogue in the book that takes this story and pushes it forward looking at, for example, the way that uh, this sort of environment of engineering professionalism and sort of engineers looking at their own Uh, place within American technological society transforms in the 1980s. And it also looks in particular at two really interesting groups, the Engineering Social Justice and Peace Network and Engineers Without Borders. So um, I'll just mention that for listeners to look particularly at that because there's a lot more in the book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. So Along those lines, Matt, there's, of course, a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say uh, related to the epilogue is is that I don't see this book as uh, about something dead that happened a long time ago. Um, I mean... I see all of these questions re-emerging today, and I see that the, the significance of them for um, practitioners in the engineering world, and in particular, uh, more likely for uh, listeners of this, for um, those of us who are teaching scientists and engineers, that these these questions about the is and the ought of technology and, and who the professional identity of, of the, the technologist ought to be are really critical.
0: Wonderful. And now that this book is out, and congratulations, oh, it's a great book. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you at the moment?
1: I thought the goal was to write a book and then never do anything else.
0: <laughs> right, that's what they tell us, right?
1: <laughs> no, so I'm already sort of working on on the second uh, book, which again comes out of this, this innovation group. It, the working title is... Um, Uh, Inventing Innovators, Innovation Expertise, and the Making of a Late 20th Century Techno-Scientific Selves. And it sets out to look at the rise of the the sort of identity of the innovator as somebody who stands between all of these other existing professions um, and who is is sort of navigating what it means to do uh, science and technology in a post-Vietnam era. So it looks mostly sort of from the 1960s, through to the 1980s, and um, is organized around following out these so-called innovation experts um, and and showing how you can go from this tiny uh, elite group called the Innovation Group to um, now... And the National Science Foundation, for example, has something called the Innovation Core or the I Corps. So, you know, everything has to have, have an I in, in front of it, uh, which is intended to um, turn academic scientists into hybrids who can um, negotiate um, the, the world of entrepreneurship, who can work on creative and collaborative solutions through to policy questions through science and technology. So, so that's the big um, future direction.
0: Well, that sounds awesome, too. And So best of luck with that project, Matt, and we'll check back in um, once that's out, too. And I'd love to talk to you about that once once that's done. But in the meantime, congratulations on the book, and uh, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today.
1: Oh, uh, thank you. This was really quite a blast.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.